to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Yes, Virginia, it's okay to blame China. What's wrong with blaming China for the COVID-19 pandemic? The short answer, nothing. China is directly to blame for the pandemic that has been raging around the world since the beginning of 2020. It has forced the world to lock down. And as of April 14th, this virus has infected nearly 2 million people worldwide and killed more than 124,000 people in at least 184 countries. And it is far from over. Of course, by now, we all know that the virus began in Wuhan, China. That's why we sometimes call it the Wuhan virus or the China virus. It makes sense. And it's a pattern we've used for a long time. So we have the Spanish flu, for example, and MERS, which stands for the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. For the record, neither of the names I mentioned are either racist or inappropriate, just descriptive and factual. So is the Wuhan virus. At first, the Chinese government claimed that it started in an open-air exotic meat market, as you know, also known as the wet market. It was just an act of nature, they said, over which they had no control. In fact, they even took credit for shutting it down, and they now demand that the world has to be thankful for all they have done to bring it under control. They said, quote, Hasty and reckless allegations, such as naming China as the origin in an attempt to shift the blame before any scientific conclusion, is irresponsible and will definitely do harm to international cooperation at this critical time, unquote. And they even blame the United States military for, quote, planting the virus in Wuhan, honestly. But in China, which is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, also known as the CCP, has been to blame from the very beginning. They were to blame in November 2019 when they first saw what they called the, quote, mysterious pneumonia-type virus, unquote, and they suppressed every bit of information about it that they could. And China was to blame in December when it silenced the doctor who first recognized it as a type of SARS. And he tried to warn his colleagues to treat patients who had it with care for their own safety and the safety of their families. He knew what he was talking about because he contracted it himself. And in mid-January, he died from it. And it was the CCP that suppressed the Chinese people who shared on social media through comments, photographs, and videos what was really going on in Wuhan in December and January, that the hospitals were full to overflowing and that people were dropping in the street and dying where they fell. We've talked about this before, so it's an old story, but they're still denying it. And they were to blame for the millions of people who just disappeared when their cell phones suddenly went dark with no explanation. And they also tried to keep the world at large from knowing about the source of the virus, that virus that was suddenly spreading beyond China. The CCP blamed bats that they said were sold in the wet market in Wuhan, although there were some reports that insisted that there weren't any bats being sold in that market. 
and the CCP hid any information about the Level 4 so-called biosafety lab where we now believe the virus was actually created. What the CCP also tried to cover up were the activities of virologist Shi Zhengli. And there, there's something else. There is still a mystery about the Wuhan Virology Lab and the virologist who is getting more attention than she wants because the evidence, the growing evidence, points to the fact that she is the expert who created the monster we call COVID-19. Her name, as I said, is Shi Zheng Li, and she's the one who led the team in the Wuhan Virology Lab that's been, quote, studying, unquote, the bat viruses that have been apparently playing a major role in the creation of COVID-19. Shi Zheng Li is known as China's Bat Lady because of her years of work with bat diseases and her frequent trips to the bat caves of China in which she collected her specimens, live animals, as well as bat urine and feces for her laboratory work. But despite the colorful stories from the CCP about her trips deep into the bat caves, she is more than just a little suspect. The CCP has praised her diligence in identifying the virus and the DNA sequence of what we now call COVID-19. But I think she did a great deal more than that. At first, when her name hit the airwaves, she expressed deep concern about the tragic events in Wuhan and worried about what would happen as a result. But more recently, when others tried to talk about it and her name came up, she told them they should, quote, shut their stinking mouths, unquote. Nice lady. On February 6th, the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong tried to portray her as a hero. They wrote, quote, After more than a decade of work, she built one of the world's largest databases of bat-related viruses. Her work gave a head start to the scientific research community's understanding of the origin of the new virus, unquote. But in fact, there were parts of her work that were neither shared nor explained. She used her own database to prove that this virus came from bats. Her team was given credit for being the first to identify that the coronavirus that was killing people was a direct descendant of a wild strain they had culled from the droppings of a bat in the Yunnan province and contained 96% of the genes of that horseshoe bat. The virus's genome sequence was quickly uploaded to an international database. This ostensibly allowed other countries to come up with the test kits to screen suspected cases. And it was that database that Xi's team used when the new infectious coronavirus caused the dramatic outbreak in China in December. And no surprise that it was in that database that they found the virus. That article in South China Morning Post was written by a reporter in Beijing who was no doubt following the party line. But in the subheadings of the article, the editors in Hong Kong raised serious doubts in their first sentence. They wrote, quote, is one of the scores of scientists joining a global effort to hunt down the new coronavirus. But some people have blamed her for creating it in the first place, unquote. For many years, scientists have warned 
that the possibility of new infectious diseases spreading around the world is real and accelerating. This is particularly true in countries where international travel is common and people move freely and mix together with others from around the world. In the past, they have talked about new diseases arising from close contact with sources of infections, including animals kept in unsanitary conditions. But in this case, all of the accumulated evidence points to the fact that COVID-19 was not an accident of nature. There is already ample evidence and growing evidence that COVID-19 was designed as a bioweapon in a laboratory, a synthetic virus derived from SARS, but created on purpose and released from the lab, perhaps by accident, but who knows. And China is directly responsible for it. Every day brings more evidence that the virus was engineered in that so-called biosafety lab by adding HIV components to its DNA and altering the S-spikes that characterize it as a coronavirus. You know those, those little red things sticking out from the picture of the, the virus? Those are called S-spikes. And when it escaped, by accident or on purpose, the Chinese government ignored the threat that it posed to the rest of the world, and even to its own country, even though it was spreading like wildfire in Wuhan and in the surrounding areas. It was allowed to spread without any warning to the world that it was coming. In fact, although the virus had begun its attack two months before, the CCP allowed millions of Chinese citizens to leave the country in mid-January and travel around the world, knowing that many of them would be carrying the virus with them and likely spread it wherever they went. Many of these people were from Wuhan. Every new finding by diligent researchers supports the theory that this was not an accident of nature, but rather that COVID-19 was designed to be a bioweapon and that China's government is directly responsible for the pandemic that resulted. Because of their first efforts to hide the existence of the virus and then to blame it on a wet market in Wuhan, and then to go to extraordinary efforts to misrepresent the number of Chinese people that it had sickened and killed, the Chinese government is more than just suspect in suppressing information about the virus from the world. And then, finally, when they officially revealed limited information about it on December 31st, and thousands, maybe even millions of people in China were already dying or dead, the virus was just getting started spreading around the world. Because of the CCP's downright lies to the world about what we were all suddenly about to deal with, more than 124,000 people around the world have already died from this virus. And nearly 2 million people have been confirmed infected by it. And it is far from over. Now a cynic would say, that to China, which has a population of 1.4 billion people, that's not a whole lot of people that got the virus. But if you're a parent, or a son or daughter, a husband or a wife of a victim of this terrible disease, every lost life was a tragedy and unnecessary. And the number of people in China, the population there, is totally irrelevant. So let's get back to that 
virology lab in Wuhan. The CCP hid all information about the, quote, biosafety lab, unquote, where they were studying the SARS virus that came from bats. The CCP blamed the virus on a local wet market in Wuhan. We know that. And once the lab was brought up into the discussion, the CCP tried to cover up its real activities. But according to an article on April 14th in the Washington Post, two United States embassy officials visited the Wuhan lab in 2018. And I quote, They dispatched two diplomatic cables categorized as sensitive but unclassified back to Washington. They dispatched two diplomatic cables categorized as sensitive but unclassified back to Washington. The cables warned about safety and management weakness at the Wuhan Institute of Virology Lab and proposed more attention and help. The first cable also warns that the lab's work on bat coronaviruses and their potential human transmission represented a risk of a new SARS-like pandemic, unquote. Now, as you know, I'm an intelligence analyst, and I'd rather not take the word of the Washington Post, which has published some pretty sketchy reports in the past. And they clearly have it out for the president, so anything that would make him look bad will do for them to print. So I'd like to see the original reports that were leaked just now. But having said that, in my first report about the lab back in January, I quoted a much more reputable publication, Nature, which published an article the year before about the lab. That was in 2017. Although the editor posted a note dated January 2020, which he, in which he said, quote, many stories have promoted an unverified theory that the Wuhan lab discussed in this article played a role in the coronavirus outbreak that began in December 2019. Nature knows of no evidence that this is true, unquote. And then he repeated the theory that the pandemic originated in an animal market. But in the heart of the article itself, author David Sirinovsky wrote, quote, Some scientists outside China worry about pathogens escaping and the addition of a biological dimension to the geopolitical tensions between China and other nations." Unquote. In fact, that very thing had happened in China already when pathogens, specifically SARS viruses, escaped from a laboratory in Beijing. Not once, but several times. So the concerns were well-founded, but apparently nobody really paid very much attention anyway. So getting back to the first reports of the virus at the end of 2019, and in an effort to explain the alarming sickness that was devastating the world population in a growing number of countries in the early months of 2020, there was a flurry of undocumented, misleading, and even downright false reports published almost daily in the international press. And there was false advice coming from the World Health Organization that was supposed to be warning the world and giving accurate guidance. Part of the problem was that everyone was trying to explain something that very few people understood and no one who knew was willing to talk about. What we didn't know was far more than what we did know. 
and we have already seen that the virus is still presenting puzzles that our scientists have been having a great deal of difficulty understanding. Now these puzzles are critical because at the end of the day, the goal of all the scientists and doctors and everyone else involved in the process of solving the deadly riddle of the COVID-19 is to cure it and to prevent it in the future. If the Chinese were willing to share their knowledge about the virus and work with other scientists, it might go a great deal faster. Collaboration among willing partners usually finds answers much faster than people working alone. But scientists around the world are racing to find answers and even without the help of the Chinese virologists who know far more than they're telling, they will find the answers they need to beat this virus. But that is still in the future and in the meantime, I have a lot of questions. Now I've got to take a short break, but when I come back, I'll tell you about my questions and then about a man whom I call China's stooge. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Now, just before the break, I said I have some questions about COVID-19, and here are some of them. For example, why do some people get deathly ill and some die from COVID-19, and some people don't feel sick at all? How is it that different people get different symptoms? Some people get a high fever and painful congested lungs. Some people feel fizzy, as they call it. Some people ache all over. And some people don't even know that they're sick. How is it possible that some people can get the virus, recover from it, and then, in a very short time, get it again? This just happened in a major way on the other side of the world. Yonhap News in South Korea just reported that 116 South Koreans who had fully recovered from coronavirus had just tested positive for a second time. And that was just as the country was considering easing the social distancing requirement. And here's another question that follows that one. Does the human body create antibodies against this virus? And if so, how long do they live? Do they work? Do they prevent people from getting the virus again? And how come nobody seems to know if there will be a second wave of COVID-19 in the fall? Could it be that this is not a normal virus, that this was engineered to be unpredictable? Is that even possible? When I first said that the COVID-19 pandemic originated in the Wuhan Laboratory of Virology, that was back in mid-January, 
It was called conspiracy theory. But since then, some pretty serious people have gone on the record to support that theory, and they are no longer laughing at the idea that this virus was created in a laboratory on purpose. In fact, they're taking it very seriously indeed. And if that is true, and people in the State Department are among those who believe that it is, if it was in fact engineered in that laboratory, don't you think it's downright cynical that the woman who most likely engineered it from a known SARS virus into the much more complex COVID-19, that virus that has spread all over the world and killed so many people, that she is given credit for, quote, discovering the virus in her database? According to all the latest intelligence that I've seen, she put it there. She created a monster on purpose and unleashed it on the world. And there is an irony in this that has not yet been mentioned. There is probably no one in the world better qualified to develop an antidote to this virus than Xi Zhengli, since it was she who did the research on bats, who developed the database, who identified the sequence, and most likely developed the virus herself. No one knows this virus better than Xi Zhengli. And yet, a new wave of infections is now taking place in China, and to the best of our knowledge, there is no vaccine coming from her lab and no cure to save them. And then, what we also know is that China allowed this virus to spread without any warning to the world that it was coming. And they allowed millions of Chinese citizens, many of them from Wuhan, where the epidemic was already raging, to leave the country in mid-January and travel around the world as they celebrated their Lunar New Year's. The Chinese government did that in the middle of a growing epidemic, which they already knew was highly contagious. Even when they knew that these people were likely taking the virus with them and spreading it to thousands of people in countries all over the world. And they let them go anyway. Five million people left Wuhan in the middle of January before the Lunar New Year. While many of them traveled inside of China, there were thousands, maybe millions, who traveled beyond the borders of China to the United States, to Europe, to Asia, taking the Wuhan virus with them. This was not a secret to the Chinese government. They let it happen. So first, they hid the virus. They hid the epidemic. They kept secrets from the rest of the world. And then they sent infected people out into the world to spread the virus, the epidemic, that they were already struggling with. There is something inherently evil in all this. And as I said before, there are far more questions than there are answers. And one of the big questions is, how complicit was the Chinese government in the creation and the spreading of this virus around the world? We don't know yet, but we have some ideas. So now I want to tell you a story about a man I call China's Stooge. You know, the United Nations 
started out with high aspirations of bringing peace to the world through the combined efforts of nations. Their charter embodied the ideals of the democratic process as a method of giving all the members an equal voice. It sounds good. Yet in recent decades, we have watched the United Nations dissolve into a corrupt body of men and women whose own self-interest and self-aggrandizement and unquenchable thirst for power trumps any democratic ideals that were originally conceived. Many of them have never experienced democracy at home and frankly couldn't care less about the democratic process. So it should have come as no surprise when the corruption became so rampant and so apparent and when nobody seemed to care. Which brings us to COVID-19 and the World Health Organization, which is one of the premier groups connected to the United Nations. And how, even in the face of such a massive global pandemic, self-interest prevailed and the World Health Organization supported the Chinese lies and kept the world from knowing what was really going on. Complicit in this elaborate deception was the Director General of the World Health Organization himself, Director General Tedros, the first Director General of the World Health Organization from Africa, who has been a leader favored by the powerful Chinese delegation. He claims to be a good friend of China's President Xi, and he was appointed to his position with the strong support of China. Throughout the early days of the new coronavirus, Tedros repeated his opinion that the Chinese government, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, had been heroic in its dealings with the epidemic in China. Tedros's praise of China was effusive, but worse than that, far worse than that, he told President Trump and his advisors that the threat to America from the virus was minimal. He told him that as Director General of the World Health Organization. And throughout the month of January, he repeated that the risk to the U.S. was low, and on January 23rd, the World Health Organization refused to label the coronavirus that was already raging in China as a global health emergency. They issued a statement saying that there was no evidence of human-to-human -human infection outside of China, and therefore the risk to the rest of the world, including the United States, was small. They were clearly wrong. Only a few hours later, China announced that eight more people had died from the virus, bringing the number to 25. Well, we all know that those numbers were, of course, completely false, particularly by the end of January, because the CCP had already begun to lock down three whole cities with a combined population of 18 million people in an effort to stop the spread of the virus. With a death toll of 25, that seems like a major overreaction, which is uncharacteristic of China's leadership. They were already dealing with an epidemic of epic proportions, but they refused to admit it or to let the rest of the world know. Then, 
on January 28th, Tedros went to China and met with Chinese President Xi. He had nothing but praise for China. He applauded the Chinese, quote, for setting a new standard for outbreak control, unquote. And he announced that the coronavirus had been isolated by Chinese scientists at, quote, record speed, unquote. He said that they had determined that the coronavirus was the cause of the pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan. And then he went on, quote, Over the past few weeks, we have witnessed the emergence of a previously unknown pathogen. The Chinese government is to be congratulated for the extraordinary measures it has taken to contain the outbreak, despite the social and economic impact it is having. The World Health Organization continues to have confidence in China's capacity to control the outbreak. Our greatest concern, he said, is the virus's potential to spread to countries with weaker public health systems, unquote. He really said that. Weaker public health systems, like ours maybe? I wonder who he was talking about. Then on February 27th, more than a month later, and a month after President Trump had placed a ban on travelers from China, Tedros was still saying that the threat to America was, quote, low, unquote, although he did warn that there would be more cases. And Robert Redfield, the CDC director, that's the Center for Disease Control, followed his lead and told the Foreign House Affairs Subcommittee on Asia and the Pacific. He told them the same thing, that the threat remained, quote, low, unquote. So this is the advice and guidance that President Trump received from both the World Health Organization and the CDC, the people who were supposed to provide him with the information that he could count on when he had to make the tough decisions relating to the pandemic. This was already four months after the first case appeared in China and became an epidemic almost overnight. And these two men, they lied to him. And contrary to accusations that have been made against President Trump, that he waited too long, that he took his time in acting and cost so many lives, that's phony. It's rubbish. Because even though he was told that the risk to America was low, he acted anyway. And at the end of January, before there was a single case in the United States, he cut off all travel into the United States from China. When he did that, he was called all sorts of names. He was called a racist. He was called a xenophobe. But it didn't stop him. And he no doubt saved many American lives by doing so. So getting back to Tedros, it was only on March 11th, shortly after the first case appeared in the United States in Seattle, Washington, and nearly three months after the first case appeared in China, that the World Health Organization finally decided to call the virus that was now exploding in dozens of countries around the world. He finally called it exactly what it was and what it had already been for some time. He called it a pandemic. The complicity with which Tedros supported the Chinese line of lies and disinformation was disgraceful and criminal. Was it simple incompetence? 
Or was it an intentional act in an effort to curry favor with President Xi? Because by assuring the Trump administration that the threat was low in the United States, he played right into Xi's hands by misleading not only President Trump, but the entire country and putting us all at risk. And because valuable time was wasted because of his lies, he is personally responsible for the deaths of scores of Americans and the thousands of cases around the world. My guess is he just couldn't care less. So it came as a welcome surprise on Tuesday, April 14th, that President Trump announced that America will stop its funding for the World Health Organization because of its response to the coronavirus situation, because they lied to the president and no doubt cost many American lives. Bravo, Mr. President. You have started the process of making the World Health Organization and Executive Director Tedros accountable, finally. So when people are accused of racism when they call this the China virus or the Wuhan virus, they are being patently absurd. The name is an accurate description, and more than that, those who criticize the rest of us are turning their backs on the growing mountain of evidence that this virus not only began in China, it was created in China for the express purpose of being released as a weapon of war. I will admit that the jury is still out on this one, but I'm willing to place a bet on the outcome. Xi Li is an evil part of an evil regime that persecutes its own people and has no concern for the cruelty and suffering that it causes them or the rest of the world. Tedros is nothing but a self-serving, power-hungry politician, and China's President Xi is the conductor who orchestrated this global disaster. This is all about power, and they all want it. And by the way, just in case there is any doubt about where I stand, I hold China fully responsible for the COVID-19 crisis, and they need to be held accountable, too. Now, there is another aspect of this conversation that is coming up right after the break, and it has to do with the impact that COVID-19 is having and will continue to have on our lives. It would not be an understatement to say that the impact has been nothing short of life-altering. So the main question now is how, after our unexpected confinement and other restrictions, how do we come back to normal? How do we restart our lives after weeks of shelter in place, social distancing, fear of getting sick, and for some of us, the loss of friends and loved ones? So that's what I want to talk about because it is a big question and it has no simple answers. I hope the president will see this as an opportunity with many facets. He has been working hard to cement a fair trade agreement with China, and at least the phase one is in place and signed. But his opportunity will be to hold their culpability for the virus over them, to ensure that they keep their side of the bargain, which unfortunately they have never done before. 
And I hope you will see this as an opportunity to demand some form of reparation for the harm that they have done to the world and to America. And I hope he will also see this as an opportunity to rethink our supply chain and bring it back home. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. So how do we begin putting our lives together and getting back to something like what we once called normal. In the first place, there were the orders to shelter in place or stay at home, and that meant some major changes in the lives of millions of Americans. And they were anything but easy for most people. Schools were closed, children were at home all day, all the time. In some homes, this meant an opportunity to be creative and to bond. But in other homes, it meant tension, friction, and in some cases, domestic violence. These were the untold stories that may someday come out and show the ugly underside of what was meant to save lives, but in fact brought tragedy behind the walls of what should have been safe haven. 
For some of us, it meant being sent home from work, maybe working from home and staying home with our families for an indefinite period of time. But for many others, working from home wasn't an option. For them, the stay-at-home orders meant losing their jobs or being furloughed without pay. For some Americans, there was an option of unemployment payments to help carry them over. But for others, even that wasn't available, and for them, the orders to stay home meant personal disaster. There was no money for rent, for food, for medicine. In some communities, local service organizations kicked in. Some schools continued to provide meals for their students, so even though they were at home, they could still have those daily meals on which they depend. And volunteers and food banks began to work overtime, helping to provide free food to people who now had no income with which to buy food for their families. For some, neighbors became friends, taking care of each other as much as they could. In some cases, the young took care of the old, the able took care of the disabled. But in places where the elderly and the disabled were confined, tragedy also struck as the virus spread throughout the community homes in which they lived. Some hospitals in more rural areas carried on pretty much with business as usual. But in the cities and the hot spots where the coronavirus hit hard, the hospitals were taxed to the maximum. In some places, they were lacking in almost every area of PPE, personal protection equipment. And in some cases, they even had to reuse face masks, for example, because there were no replacements on hand. In cities like New York, for example, the need was at times dire. By April 14, the confirmed cases in New York City passed 107,000. Now remember, that's confirmed cases. We don't know how many other people also were carrying the virus and we didn't know about it. And the number of deaths were over 6,500. That's a higher death toll than only a handful of countries around the world. And in Manhattan, the body bags were stacking up in refrigerated trucks, waiting to be claimed or buried on Hart Island. In Louisiana, the number of cases reached 21,000, while the death toll stood at over 880 people. And New Orleans accounted for most of them. The outbreak there seems to have been triggered by the annual Mardi Gras festivals that brought thousands of people into the city on February 25th. The numbers that define this plague go on and on and on, and I don't really want to dwell on them anymore. But what I do want to talk about is something else. I want to change the subject a little bit and share with you some ideas about what happens now. These ideas they relate to two areas of our lives that we haven't talked about before. And they're both connected to the question, how do we get ourselves back to a more normal America? How do we open our country back up? The president has clearly taken on the challenge. He said this country was never meant to be shut down. But it has been shut down, and for some very good reasons only it can't stay shut down for much longer. The speed with which we live our lives, the technology, the high-speed transportation, the instantaneous transfer of information, it all has sped up our lives the way we live them 
And in the current circumstance, we risk losing everything if we don't get back to it quickly. It took years to recover from the Great Depression, but we don't have years this time around. We barely have months. And if this stay-at-home exercise has taught us anything at all, it has taught us what we need to do in order to stay safe in the face of a virus, even a deadly one like COVID-19, and how to go back in the real world and still stay safe. Our economy is getting close to a sink or swim moment. If we don't get back into the swim of things, it will irrevocably sink. So the president is right. We must, we must open it back up carefully, maybe little by little, but surely and within a reasonable time frame. This is what the president is talking about now, and I agree with him. If we don't charge up our economy, we may never truly recover our normalcy, and our country will fail. The people will suffer. The jobs will not come back, and China will win. This is not a suggestion to all go back to work on Monday and pick up where we left off. The rules are different now. The virus is still with us, and we need to be careful. But we have learned new behaviors over the last few weeks. And if we have what we need to be safe, masks, gloves, lots of soap, and hand sanitizers, we may be able to restart our economy safely without restarting the pandemic in America. It's going to be a balancing act, and it may be necessary to rethink the way in which we deal with each other, again, in order to not restart the infection cycle. There is an idea afoot, and One America News host Liz Wheeler articulated it very clearly on her program Tipping Point. She is calling for universal antibody tests that will identify anyone who has contracted the virus, whether or not they were showing symptoms. You see, if you've contracted the virus, it doesn't matter whether or not you've shown symptoms. Your body will still develop antibodies to the virus if the virus has gotten into your system. See, we don't have that information because we've only been testing people who show symptoms. They're the only ones we know of who may have the virus. The people who are asymptomatic simply don't know they're sick. Liz Wheeler pointed out, correctly I think, that we really do not know how many people have contracted COVID-19 because A, we don't test everybody, only those who are showing symptoms, and not always those, and B, we are building our national priorities based on incomplete and even false information derived from data that is dependent upon incomplete or false information. That is a recipe for failure, and it's why, as she pointed out, the predictive models that were used to plot the future run of COVID-19 in our country were so wrong and kept having to be revised. And by the way, they were revised down, which means that the original models, they were exaggerated. And they frightened us. They were really scary. They showed the possibility of millions of people being sick and dying. It would have been helpful to have more accurate predictions based on real numbers instead of guesses. But if everybody were tested for antibodies, we would have the real numbers, and we wouldn't have to depend on guesses. And here's another thing. What about social distancing? Now, in my opinion, there is great value in social distancing, and it seems to have helped keep the numbers of infections that we know about down somewhat. It stands to reason that if you don't expose yourselves to others who may have the virus, you're less likely to get it. 
but stay-at-home quarantine is not sustainable, not over the long haul. We can't just shut down our country indefinitely. It's a surefire way to shut down the country permanently. Our country is based on the first principle of survival and the second principle of being productive, creating things, building things, making things happen. So one way or another, we need to get back to doing that and being America again, the way it was meant to be. But how do we do that? How do we put everyone back to work without putting them all in danger? Well, I think the president has the right idea. You can't do it all at once. I think it may come down to the most essential industries first in those areas of the country that were the least damaged from the virus. And it should be in a way that preserves the concepts of social distancing where prudent, masks and gloves where necessary, and common sense wherever possible. Testing and vaccines, when they become available, will also become part of the process. Things will certainly change, and hopefully they'll get better and easier as we go along. But the important thing is that they move forward and we get the engines of our nation running again. The most important thing that President Trump has mentioned is that this will be what he called a rolling recovery. It will be a process, one that will unfold a little or a lot at a time. And he has promised to share his plans for recovery over the next few days. And I expect that this will be a rolling disclosure as well as a rolling recovery. He will explain his program as it develops based on the strategic planning of his team and the way things develop on the ground. And as they develop, they will continue to make decisions and change them as necessary based on the way the actual process is rolling out in reality. Now, it may start in the heartland, which wasn't hit so hard by the virus. So it may be easier to restart the economy in states like Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, Indiana, and Ohio, although the pandemic hit these states considerably later on the coasts and they may not be as far along in the recovery. But their populations are far less dense. So the possibility of the epidemic restarting in those places is less likely. And then there's this. The heartland is home to some of the country's biggest industries. So it may be a particularly good place to start opening up our companies and rehiring their workers. It will be harder in places like California, New York, New Jersey, Florida, where the population is dense and the numbers are high and the coronavirus hit them hard. Maybe this is also the time to rebuild our supply chains. Maybe this terrible experience also presents us with the opportunity to do something we should have done a long time ago. We should have brought our supply chain home. Maybe it has made it possible for us to set aside our perceived need for cheap goods from a country like China and start manufacturing them here in the United States. It will create jobs and it will bring our manufacturing industry back to life. Maybe this is the opportunity for us to rebuild America's self-sufficiency so that we are never again left at the mercy of a country that does not value our principles of honesty and fairness and can keep us at the mercy of their greed and indifference. Maybe this is the time to bring America's supply chain home. Since this pandemic is unlike anything we have experienced in our lifetime, this may be, like the shutdown, 
a process that is characterized by trial and error, one that employs best practices as the expert wrap their heads around the best solutions, the ones that achieve the best outcomes and cause the least amount of negative impact. And I'm talking about the way we reopen our country. As the shutdown comes to an end, we will be able to experience a slow but steady return to something like normalcy. We may not return to normalcy as we knew it before the pandemic hit our shores, but maybe that's a good thing. Before COVID-19, we were at each other's throats, unable to discuss basic political issues with anything approaching civility. But when the pandemic took over our lives, some of the kindness that has characterized America since the beginning began to appear out of the cracks in our agendas. Neighbor helping neighbor, young helping old, haves helping have-nots, Americans helping Americans. This is the America I grew up in. Not everywhere, not all the time, but it was at the root of what America was all about, a culture that I was taught in school, at home, even at work. Good sportsmanship, being kind, being fair. There was a sense of fairness that was basic to our way of life. And in these days, when schools are delivering free lunches to the children who would normally get them at school but can't now because the schools are closed, when the volunteers at community food banks are working overtime to make sure that the poor in their neighborhoods are able to survive this crisis, this may be the time to rekindle some of those kinder, softer feelings that we used to have. Maybe this is an opportunity for another kind of recovery, the recovery of spirit that will enable Americans to talk to each other again with respect and genuine interest in what someone with a different opinion really thinks. These are interesting times we live in, my friends. These are the best of times, the worst of times. And there is another positive outcome from this global tragedy. The next few years are going to see an explosion of biomedical technology designed to protect us and cure us from this and other biological threats that may show up in our lifetime. If it is proven that COVID-19 was indeed a product of China's bioweapons program, we may also see the creation of new international laws, laws that have some teeth in them, to prevent such developments from happening and severely punishing any country that is responsible for releasing such a deadly bioweapon. These are goals that we should be aiming for, to be kinder, to be better in the way that we deal with other people, to be respectful of other people and their opinions, even if they don't agree with ours, and to be unwavering in our rejection of the kind of technological development that puts our world at risk. What happened in the Wuhan laboratory should never happen anywhere in the world. There should be checks and balances against this kind of biological research and development, and there should be harsh punishment no matter where it happened. We must be fierce in defending the future of mankind. So now we look forward to what happens next. People are still getting sick, but not so many as before. The numbers are starting to come down, and we are, most of us, breathing a little easier. But the road ahead is still going to be rocky, and it will take all of our strength and all of our faith and all of our hope in the future to get through this and move on to a new reality and a slightly different future from the one that was ahead of us before COVID-19 changed our lives forever. What will our new reality be like? 
It's difficult to say. For some of us, it will be pretty much like it was before with small differences here and there. For others, it will be more difficult. And for some, it may even be better. For many, there will be opportunities that weren't there before. And for some, there will be challenges we never thought we would have to face. But I do believe if we have to go through this, and we did, apparently, America is the very best place we can be for what lies ahead. It has always been a land of opportunity, a land of challenge, a land of hope, and a land of promise. And the promise of tomorrow is that this deep and painful time will pass, as it always does, and we will come out on the other side somehow stronger and maybe, hopefully, a little wiser and better able to face whatever the future brings. Be safe, my friends, and be well. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.